Welcome to Revolution Recap, the episode coming after the Revolution started their season with a 2-0 loss at the Philadelphia Union. Uh, just a bit about the show before we, we get into things. Uh, Brian O'Connell is joining me today, as well as Greg Johnstone, both formerly of New England Soccer Today. I'm, of course, Sean Donahue, your host. Uh, you know, Just to start off, I wanted to mention that Brian, Greg, and I had all been working at New England Soccer Today for years. Brian and I started it. Uh, I, I can't even remember now. How long ago was it again, Brian? <laughs> Uh, it's almost almost eight years ago. Yeah, it's 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 crazy how long that had been. But we've been you know doing a lot of writing, um, and and eventually, as you saw from our post on our website, life life got the better of us, and timing to to maintain something like that was no longer there. I think all of us wanted to somehow stay involved in soccer, and the thought was bringing back Revolution Recap, which had been you know, a radio show that I hosted way back and starting in two thousand five uh, through two thousand nine, and since then had you know a few podcast here and there but never turned it into what it used to be which was a, a weekly show um that we had done on the radio and now the goal with with this show um is to to be on every week uh we'll, we plan to record sunday release it you know monday morning sunday night so people can listen to it on their on their morning commute um discuss discuss the game the past week discuss what's coming up and discuss any other relevant news uh, but that's that's generally the goal of revolution recap i'm hoping that you know brian and greg will be our our regular host I'm excited to be back on the air um, after a, a long time doing New England Soccer Today with, with Brian, uh, with Greg's help as well. And, of course, after doing Revolution Recap way back in the day in which Brian was a, a regular co-host then. Um, and maybe we'll get back some of those other co-hosts that we haven't had in a while, too, uh, as time goes forward and as we need some, some other hands on, on deck. So I, I, I'm excited. I don't know if, Brian, if you had any, any thought, thoughts on New England Soccer Today as we start this episode um, as, as something that we had worked on for years and as, as something that... Uh, I think we were both very proud of, but uh, it just became something that time-wise we, we couldn't keep up going forward. Yeah, it was, <clears throat> I'll say it was a lot of fun. It really was. And, uh, you know, I still remember, I still remember the text you sent me uh, kind of first when, when the idea first came about. And um, and just to kind of like think about like all the, all the kind of cool things we were able to do as uh, as a result of that, as a result of that outlet and just being able to, you know, you know, cover the team on the road, uh, you know, cover cover some like the smaller league games which were always kind of fun for me um i you know i i still think back to the uh reserve game to the revolution reserve games where we were both there we just kind of like watch from the watch from the sidelines and i mean that that kind of stuff is always something that i always kind of like look back at fondly when we were first starting out and then of course obviously the feedback that we got from from all of our readers and uh on, on social media and stuff that was that was always fun and it's still fun to be able to kind of you know interact and uh, and engage with them so um, I'm I'm glad that we have this opportunity to kind of like spring forth from uh, New England Soccer Today and to kind of still still kind of keep our pulses have a good excuse to keep our pulses on the on the team and on the uh, sport in general and um, you know I think that this is, that this is a great way to do it and and now that we have Greg on the three of us I think it'll be um, I think it'll be a good time, uh, not only for us, but I think it'll also allow us to uh, to continue to engage with uh, with everyone that we used to, you know, engage with um, through New England Soccer today. Yeah, and I think we all want to keep up those interactions. So uh, I'll I'll start off by giving off all of our Twitter handles. Brian's at Brian O'Connell twenty one, um, and uh, Greg Johnstone's at at G Johnstone twelve, and I'm at Sean L Donahue. Um, so you can reach any of us on Twitter and. 
want to hear your feedback on the podcast, thoughts going forward, thoughts on this show, uh, what you'd like to see in the future. But like Brian was saying, some of the, the best times at the site was when we were at to travel to away games and, and cover the team all over the country. Um, you know, one of the places we, we traveled to in the past was, was Philadelphia. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough to go down to Philadelphia this week and catch this game with, with, with Greg Johnstone. So we can, we can jump into the, the disappointment of the Revs season opener. Um, but always fun to, to make the trip to Philly. And there was a good Revs contingent uh, up in the corner and what looked like it was probably the windiest part of the stadium um, that stayed there for the whole 90 minutes d- despite the, the, rough, the rough match. Uh, which started off with a, a, a red card in just the 26th minute that, that pretty much sent everything downhill. Um, and and I, 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 we can start with Greg, but my, my first thought was, you know, here it is again, the revolution with what they did last year and all those red cards towards the end of the season that just piled up, particularly on the road, and, and here 26 minutes in, <laughs> the same story. Yeah, I mean, you, there's a full off season of buildup, and it seemed like it was a whole new era, and it was a new beginning. And you could tell from the very beginning they just seemed off and then yeah for tony to get the red card so early in the game um yeah it, it's really deflating to see kind of the same issues as they had in the at the end of last season and uh, it makes you wonder if um you know it's going to be more going forward um i will say too that uh, even before the red card i could kind of feel the energy kind of leave when Juan Agadello had a clear path to goal and the defender caught up to him and dispossessed him before he even got a shot off. I mean, right there, it kind of felt like um, it was going to be a long night for the Revs. And little did we know a few minutes later, it was uh, it got really ugly really fast. I think that moment in which uh, Juan, Juan got caught up by Trusty and Trusty made that tackle, I just thought that <clears throat> that was the point in which the Revs could have totally have made their mark on the game. And, you know, mind you, you know, Juan is the, isn't the most fleet-footed um, on the team. So, I mean, it was kind of not unexpected. But at the same time, you really have to take those opportunities, especially when you're on the road, to really make it count. And the fact that they weren't able to rebound after that. In fact, it got worse after that, like you like you had said and like everyone saw when uh, De La Maya got the red. I mean, at that point, it's pretty much game over. Um, you know, there's just too much time. There's too much playing with 10 men. And then obviously it became nine later on when Dielma got booked as when Dielma got tossed as well. So, um, you know, that was really the, that was to me, their best chance to really make, make an impact, get that goal. And, you know, who knows what happens after that. I think the team was lucky too that, uh, and Greg and I kept seeing Sapong with those great chances he had, um, and, and kept commenting on how pathetic his finishing was. Um, and, and we can say from being in the stadium that the, the wind was pretty intense and definitely played a factor in the game. But to to have the opportunities that CJ Sapong had, re- regardless of how windy it was, and to continuously miss those chances that that he had to put, uh, you know, the Union ahead by multiple goals, um, that was something that really played in the Revs' favor and something they couldn't take advantage of, particularly after that red card. But it, it could have been a lot worse of a scoreline than it was. Um, you know, red card changes things, but the Union had 21 shots. I think 17 of them, um, if I remember correctly, when we looked at halftime, came in the first half. Uh, they, they took the foot off the gas a bit in the second half for whatever reason, but they, they were all over the revolution in the first half. Even before that red card, with the exception of that, you know, Aguadelo chance, uh, I thought it was a, mostly the Union's game. Um, and, and just disappointing to see after you know, all the talk about a new start from this team that they got off to another not very great start. Um, against, at least in my opinion, I don't know if you guys agree, this, this Union team doesn't strike me as one that's going to be you know, in any contention for, for any trophies this year. 
No, I agree. I, I don't think this was a very strong union team. I think this is a, this was actually a really good test for the Revolution. Um, you know, especially with their road woes last season. Um, you know, it's it's not the toughest opponent. It's someone in your conference. Um, it's someone that I think on paper they should give them a fight. And yeah, even even before the red card, uh, the union were getting some really good chances in. And, um, you know, we were talking about this last night, Sean, but the wind was pushing south. So the revolution had the wind at their backs in the first half. And it was a pretty evenly matched game. And we knew that in the second half, once the union had the wind on them, they were going to be able to play long balls. Um, it was going to be easier for them to make chances. We kind of saw some corners and some crosses almost, you know, go in the net as a, as a fluke a couple times there. I think Somi had cleared the ball off the line on a corner. Um, Turner had to push one over the crossbar, although I think that one might've been going over the crossbar anyway. Um, so the first half was, it was pretty even. And, and that kind of showed that the revs were a step or two behind the union who, as I say, I don't, I don't think that they're a very strong team at all. Yeah. I think this was not, I'm, I mean, I was actually just about to say that Greg, where I thought this was the kind of the per, more per, the most perfect matchup you could really ask for aside from the game being at home for the revs, um, an opportunity for, you know, the, you know, Brad Friedel to really kind of, you know, make his mark on what what he wanted to do with the Revs and set the tone. And I think we kind of saw that a little bit with the lineup that we saw. Um, but the, after the way the game played out, you know, you really you really kind of, you know, saw that there were opportunities and, you know, that the obviously the Agadol one being the biggest one um, that they could have done. They could have done more, um, but they just it just seems like it was like a continuation of what we saw last year, which was a lot of getting burned on defense. Um, even before, even before uh, Dalmea's red, you still saw uh, times in which the revs were just getting burned on defense. And um, it just didn't, it just didn't look like, you know, there, there were a lot of changes, enough changes were made, I should say during the, during the off season and during the preseason to which um, the revs could have had a legitimate chance at actually getting, you know, getting uh, even a point, never mind three points from from Saturday's game. I think we should get into the lineup quickly here. Um, there were three new faces that weren't part of the team last year that, that got the start. Uh, Pania, Zahibo, and Somi. And then the the real surprise to all of us, I think, was Matt Turner getting the start in goal. Uh, Cody Cropper was a w- out with an illness. Uh, however, Brad Friedel said after the game that even if Cropper was was available and healthy that it would have been Matt Turner just because of how well he performed in preseason. Uh, so that was a shock to all of us. I thought Turner actually had a good game and was one of the, the, the few players to come out of this game with, with a lot of credit. Um, I don't think anything that went wrong in this one was his fault. Um, so that was an interesting move and, and one where I, you know, I thought it certainly didn't hurt the team. I think he held his own. I think it was a big, it, it was really a big thing to ask him to do to play in front of, you know, basically, you know, uh, a backline that's still kind of in flux with um, with Dalmea and Dalna still, still trying to get on the same page a little bit. Because even last year, towards the end of last year, they there were times where where uh, Dalna wouldn't be playing center back; he'd be playing out wide. And then there were times where Dalmea, I think Dalmea missed like the last two or three games last year uh, for whatever reason. And um, so it was their their partnership was still a work in progress. And um, you know, and to have and to have Zahibo over there, and you know, it was just I thought it was really a kind of a big task for him to take on so early. Um, but he, I have to agree in the sense that I didn't think he, his performance he and I don't think his performance was all that bad. Um, 
considering it could have been, <laughs> considering it could have been five nothing um, with all the chances that Sapong missed. But um, I don't think he did anything to hurt his case as to you know maybe staying as the as the number one. Other than the fact that you have two proven uh, two proven players ahead of him or behind him, depending upon how you look at it on the depth chart. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think Matt Turner did anything wrong. I think he played pretty well, actually. Um, neither of the goals were necessarily his fault, and the Union offense was all over the the Revolution defense. I don't blame any uh, any fault on him. Um, but I am really surprised to see how the goalkeeper picture shakes out, just because I think we all assumed Cropper was the number one for Friedel to come out and say, oh, he would have started regardless. That seems to me that that's him saying that Matt Turner is the number one going forward. I feel like your opening day number one is your starter, um, especially against, a, as I say, a conference rival. You're kind of seeing how you measure up against Philadelphia and kind of the bottom tier. I mean, let's 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 admit it. New England's in the bottom tier of the Eastern Conference, and Philadelphia looks like they're going to be in the bottom tier too. So you kind of want to see how you measure up. And I feel like if you're playing Matt Turner over Cody Cropper in that instance, he's the preferred keeper. So um, I think it was a good start for Matt Turner. It was promising. I think he exceeded my expectations. I mean, I, I haven't really seen him play, so I didn't have many expectations. But um, it was a pretty solid game all the way around for him, I, I thought. Well, and let's talk about the defense in front of him. And uh, Gabriel Somi was somebody I think we're all interested to see because last year, um, I think it was clear to, to all of us that Chris Tierney's pace and age had caught up to him a bit. He was never the fastest guy, but we were seeing him get burned um, quite frequently down that flank when he was playing at left back uh, to the point where he you know, couldn't hold down the starting spot anymore. Uh, Somi came in and you know, much to no one's surprise, he got the start in this first game. Um now, we, we talk about T- Turner not being at fault for any of the goals. You certainly can't say the same thing for, for Gabriel Somi. Um, Greg, Greg and I were sitting right on that side of the field when, when Somi got beat in the second half. Um, but, you know, overall, there was there were some positives on him, you know, going forward. Uh, but the one-on-one defending from him, it seemed like the same weaknesses were there that, that we were so concerned about last year with this team uh, on that one-on-one defending. He got burned a few times, especially on that goal. Uh, so, uh, you know, he was a guy that I, I think uh, the verdict is still out, but the, the first game was a bit worrying. And it, um... uh, well, I, I mean, I didn't necessarily mind him too much. He, he didn't have much of an impact on the game in the first half. Um, so I, I, he, he seemed suitable. Uh, but, yeah, that second half uh, goal that uh, where he let the guy essentially go around him, uh, that was just really where he seemed to kind of cheat a little bit and think the guy was turning the other way and he just gave him a clear path to goal. Um, he, he seemed fine. I, I don't want to get too um, judge the players too much because it was so windy and they were playing with a man down that it's kind of hard to judge how they're going to play all season. Um, it's not really the best to evaluate, but that was such a boneheaded mistake by Somi. Um, it's just a really poor start to his tenure with the Revolution. Um, just on that one play that, um, I don't know, it, it, you shouldn't be making that that mistake at this level, I feel, where um, you essentially just give a guy a clear path to goal and just get beaten that badly. And I think one thing that didn't help was the fact that they were playing such a high line, especially at that point. I remember right. you know, what I remember like looking at I remember looking at the back line at that point. I'm like, wow, they're playing really up high. Um, and then that happened and I was like, you know, I mean, what 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 was the expectation? Like, you, you know, I mean not again, not to excuse, not 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 to excuse Somi's performance, but at the same time, you know, if Fried, if Friedel is asking them to kind of play that high line, 
well, you kind of have to be judicious. And I mean, you know, some of that, and I think that falls, I think that falls a lot on Friedel and wanting to play that high line and, you know, not have, not being smart in, you know, having his players do it at the right time. So, um, you know, I saw that coming. I mean, I saw that high line. I was like, oh shoot, they're, they're pretty much opening themselves up right now to get, to get hit. And that's exactly what, what happened. So, um, I, like you said, Greg, it's not, you can't really pin that all on Somi, but it is kind of, uh, I guess you could say disappointing a little bit to see kind of the same trademark things happening to the, to the defense that happened last year, where, um, I think that, I think during that play, the guy, the play you guys were talking about, um, I actually thought, wow, <laughs> not, not to be critical, but I thought that was Tierney getting burned all over again. I was like, oh wait, that's Somi. <laughs> so if you're not seeing improvement, then that's also, um, if you're seeing the same things from last year, then that's also somewhat disconcerting if, uh, you know, they spent all offseason trying to build, build a better back line and, you know, the same problems are still happening. Yeah, no, I think that was the same, the same thought I had is that was the big issue for them last year was that, that left back spot, um, getting beat one-on-one and seeing, you know, so many give up, uh, you know, that opportunity there. And there was another chance too, where, where he got beat one-on-one that, uh, wasn't the most impressive. Again, it's his first game. It's a debut. It's a very difficult situation. Um, but a, a few worrying signs and, and things to watch for going forward. Um, as far as the rest of the defense is concerned, I thought Farrell had a decent game. Um, his passing accuracy was the best of any field player that went 90 minutes for the Revs, uh, which is not something you could say about him too much last year at 78%. Um, on, on the flip side, I think because of the situation they were in, he was asked to play a lot more defense and didn't have the opportunities uh, to get forward, which is where we've seen the weakness in this game in particular uh, last year. Is it just you know there, there weren't those chances because the team uh, was down a man and had to, had to defend for most of the game. Um, but the, the the one other thing I wanted to talk about was Dielna being named captain. I think we all saw that in preseason uh, based on on what Friedel was doing that it was going to be Dielna. But going into the off season, I think a lot of us you know would have thought it might be De La Mea. Um, so to see Dielna, who's a bit more experienced. Um, but hasn't been on the team very long. Get the captaincy was, was interesting. I don't know, um, you know, the thought process behind that. Uh, I, I suppose being a you know thirty year old veteran um, that that played into it. But I think we saw what happened with him at the end of the game was not something you want to see out of a captain as far as, as smarts goes. And considering the situation where he got that red card where the game was was far already lost, um, and now took himself out of the next game. Uh, Brian, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on on him being named captain and, and also. Um, even more so with with the red card situation that the team has has had le- recently, to see him get that that you know unnecessary red card in a situation where the, the game was was already lost to to leave them without their captain and without both of their center backs going to the next game. Yeah, that, that situation seriously makes me question as to whether or not it was a good idea to give them the armband. I mean, it's one thing to it's one thing to get a red card early in the game. Um, you know, again, not not excusing it, but just the the lack of awareness especially when you're already when the team's already down by one by one, down a man and the other player that happens to be down is also the other center back it just doesn't it just doesn't seem like that's the kind of decision uh you know it's just the decision that you want your captain making i mean i know that you know tempers get heated and i get it but that's why but that's why you're being asked to wear the arm man so that you're above that so that you're above you know, the, the temptation to give into your emotions. Um, and from what we saw last night, I, I, I think all of us, I think a lot of people are seriously questioning whether or not he should be captain. But, you know, going back to, like, who should be captain, I mean, the fact is, in my opinion, I don't think there really is a clear-cut choice, and it's still the same from last year. 
Um, I think the argument could be made that, you know, Chris Tierney would be the captain because he's the longest tenured and he has a lot of experience. He has a lot. He does have he does provide leadership. But if he's not going to be in the 11 very often, which it doesn't seem like it's going to happen this year, I mean, then who's your captain? And if that's an issue, then, you know, I think there's there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, Who, who is your captain next week? <laughs> Uh, for me, uh, for me, I'd actually give it to Fagundes because um, I, I think I was telling you last night, Sean. It seems like they want to keep him uh, really involved in the game. Um, I think they want to have him be a key part of the offense, and he's been on the Revs for a while now. He's still very young, but it's been what is this his fifth or sixth season? Um, so I would give it to Fagundes. Um, I know that's kind of a lack of options. The other option, though, that I just want to throw out there, Captain Matt Turner. Just, just throwing that out there. I mean, he was the best player on the pitch last night. Just saying. I guess my 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 vote would go to uh, my vote would go to uh, Scott Caldwell. He's worn the he's worn the armband. I think in Open Cup games before. So I think if you're going to give the captain's armband to somebody, I think it would probably be Scott Caldwell. Um, but I don't know if that if that armband thing was more of a Jay Heaps thing or if it was more of a you know he deserved it. I think honestly, from my own perspective, I think that he would probably be the most fitting. Uh, the most fitting candidate to to wear the armband next week. So we've talked about the questionable decisions on defense from De La Mela and Dialna with the with the red cards and um, certainly getting beat on that that long ball again. And the red card there was reminiscent of, of last year. Uh, but I, the one guy you mentioned earlier was Zahibo and paired next to Scott Caldwell in this game. Twenty uh, four year old the guy who's a, a lot bigger than Scott Caldwell. Uh, I forget his exact height, but you know you you want some height in that position, particularly next to a, a shorter guy in Scott Caldwell. Um, I thought he had a decent debut. His his passing accuracy left a bit to be desired at, at 68%. Uh, a bit understandable when you're down a man, but even before that happened, his, his passing accuracy wasn't great. Uh, however, I did think he played better than what I saw from him in the preseason. Uh, I left preseason not particularly impressed, particularly after that early red card in his, in his first game. Um, but I, I thought he had a decent game, didn't necessarily have the impact they needed from him, but again, was in a very difficult situation given, given that red card. Um, Greg, I'm curious what, what your thoughts were on, on Zahibo and in, in his debut. Um, he was the leader on this, in this game and touches with 61. For yeah, the I was kind of laughing to myself. Like, what, what was your expectations going into the season? Like as long as he didn't maul someone on the field, you know, that, that'd be a, a plus compared to what we saw in preseason. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. I thought he did a really good job. Uh, he seemed like one of the better Revolution players. Um, again, I think a lot the win really influenced the game. So if you look at the stats, it's going to be a little bit messy. But he was one of the guys that was winning some balls in the midfield. Uh, and not just that, but he he was able to, to seemingly get the ball up the field at certain points. Um, Caldwell, on the other side of him, didn't seem to have nearly as much of an impact on the game. So I kind of measured him against Caldwell in that respect. Um, and he, he seemed to uh, hold his own given the circumstances. So I, I was pleasantly surprised with him. I think one thing that I, I kind of I think that we all missed and, and we didn't get to see with because of that early early red card was the fact that you know the the exchanges between him and Pania I would have liked to have seen more of because um, there those are your two obviously your two newest players and what we saw from the preseason I mean there were flashes in especially from Pania and. Um, you know, I would have liked to seen more interchange between them just to get a get better stock of what what Zahib was bringing to the table. But um, you know, he really didn't do he really didn't uh, he really didn't you know make too many terrible mistakes or anything. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how he performs <laughs> once they have eleven minutes once they have eleven guys for ninety minutes. Um, but I don't think he did anything to hurt his case as far as uh, as far as uh, uh, Caldwell's partner in the midfield. 
You make a good point, too, when you talk about the, uh, Greg, when you talk about the involvement of Scott Caldwell compared to Sahibo. Um, Caldwell only had 43 touches, which I, th- I think was something like seventh on the team in touches for, and for a game where not many guys went 90 minutes. Um, it's surprising because he's a guy that we always saw, you know, central figure in a lot of the action last year. Um, a guy that would, you know, always be involved in, in the play and somehow, even if it's just you know, making a smart pass to, to keep possession. Um, but he only had 43 touches compared to the Hebo 61. So that, that is an interesting thing to watch. Um, but I did want to talk about Pania in particular because he was a guy that, to me, and I, and I know Brian and I watched one of the preseason games together, and we were both really impressed with uh, what Pania brought, his technical ability, his ability to create something off the dribble. Um, even his shooting ability was, was something that we were excited to see uh, from the Revs in this first game. Uh, he only got to play 26 minutes because of that red card to, to De La Mea, and that was in particular probably one of the more disappointing aspects of this game is that we didn't get to see more from him. Um, he only had seven touches in those first 26 minutes. Uh, He's a guy you'd like to see more involved in that. But even with those seven touches, he had you know, 83% passing uh, and, and he had one key pass, which is a, a chance that you know, created a good chance for a teammate. Um, and it was a game in which the Revs did not have many of those. So it, it, there were some promising signs early from him. But it's, 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 I think we can all be, we'd all say we were disappointed that we only got to see seven touches out of Pania in, in, in his debut in, in just 26 minutes, which was a product of, of that red card. And, and maybe we can question. Uh, the decision to to take him out rather than somebody else. I really liked what I saw from him. I thought he uh, I thought he linked well with uh, with Fagundes and uh, and with uh, with Agudelo. So you know it was promising to see him kind of on the same page with both of them. Um, obviously, you're only getting 26 minutes of that, and in a game in which you know Philadelphia was also kind of getting their chances as well. Um, you would have liked to have seen, you know, a bigger body of work from that very first game. But I thought he looked comfortable. I thought he looked really. I thought he looked really good on the dribble. I thought he looked, um, you know, his vision was there. Certainly, um, it, it seemed like a continuation of what we saw during the preseason. Um, you know, and I think it's something that I think is is a uh, is is certainly a, a positive development uh, going forward for the team. And and um, you know, I think if uh, if he continues that form, if he continues to prove that. Form, that improve upon that form, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the offense will, will start to, uh, to, you know, generate some, generate some more goals and, and, um, you know, really, really be more impactful this year. Yeah. I, I don't have much to add on Pania. I mean, seven touches is, I mean, it's very disappointing to kind of have expectations and you get to see your first look at a guy and he gets seven touches and then he's off. We barely saw him with the ball. Um, I will say I'll change the question a little bit because just because I think it's worth noting uh, is that we were really scratching our heads why he was coming off and not Bunbury um, just because I think we were all kind of comp- I-, I was surprised Bunbury at the start but I thought Bunbury really redeemed himself in the second half and he made some plays happen um, that went down a man they really needed it to uh, when he was playing up top uh, after Agadello came off um, I think he's uh, played pretty well and he certainly made a case for himself that even if he's out of the starting lineup uh, he might be the number two guy behind Agadello. Yeah, I wasn't particularly impressed with with Bunbury in the first half. I didn't think he had the the impact um, that you you need from a guy playing as a as a winger in that system. Uh, again, after the red card, all bets are off. But it, just even in the first you know tw- twenty five or so minutes, I didn't think he was particularly impressive. Uh, I know he led the team in, in unsuccessful touches at halftime and at the end of the game with with six total. Uh, which is not a great stat, but I, I agree. When when Aguadello came off, Bunbury I thought played a lot better in that role and had a had a great chance 
um, shortly after he moved to the to the striker role to actually uh, equalize the game. So I, I was actually impressed with what he did in the second half as well. Um, and it, it, it raises an interesting question because Bunbury, a lot of different points in his career, has been really successful as that central striker. Um, I think you look at his skill set and his pace and and his ability to you know beat guys for speed and think that maybe wing is the space for him. And and I don't think any of us have been particularly impressed with his finishing ability that we've seen over the years. Uh, but the the more I think about it and the more you look at his past career, when he was with Kansas City, they played that 4-3-3 and he was the guy in the center um, and he had so much success there. Uh, I, I almost wonder if despite you know what you think of his skill set, uh, he's more cut out to be that, that forward. And as Greg said, um, with his pace, he's a guy that would be great to kind of come off the bench. Um, and he was certainly a change of pace in this game when he went up top because uh, he looked a lot more comfortable to me in that role than he did in the right. Yeah, it's the thing about Bunbury, especially for the last two or two years or so, it's just been the level the the level of inconsistency that we've we've seen from him. Because, you know, he'll have these games where, you know, he'll you know, he'll he'll be a world beater, like he'll be, he'll play great defense and he'll be just as strong up top um in the in the attacking third. But then, you know, once the ball gets on his foot and he has a great opportunity, the the finishing just isn't there. Or the finishing is there and he's just you know, he makes a bonehead mistake somewhere else in the field. So it's it's just tough to really gauge what you're what you're going to get from Bunbury night in and night out because um, you know you would think that he's ideally suited for you know for for playing up top um, and then he gets and he you know he gets stretches where he gets really hot and he create creates things for the rest of the for the rest of the offense um, and then there are times where he just disappears and then you know they move him out wide and he looks great and then he disappears. And then they move him back centrally. So it's kind of, they kind of seem to, flim, they, the tendency has been to kind of like flip flop, flip flop, flip flop him, easy for me to say, from time to time whenever he seems to regress. Um, so it's kind of just hard to put, get your finger on like what, what, what you're going to get from him night in, night out. But, uh, you know, or even from first half to second half, as, as we saw yesterday. Were you surprised to see him out there over both Roe and Namath? Um, no, only for the fact that I think Friedel was looking for somebody who's, I guess, more defensively sound. And I know that Rowe can Rowe's defense isn't bad, but I think Bunbury's defense is somewhat better um, on the on the most part. And I think he has the speed to really kind of track back, um, especially with them playing a high line. I think he kind of like, you know, his skill set is more is more attuned to uh, to a team that's going to press high. Um, so it didn't really really surprise me that he was uh, given the start over over Namath, but um, you know who's to say that that's going to be the case you know on Saturday. Well, with Rowe, you have a guy that's been you know on the fringes of the U.S. national team. Uh, so I, w- with Namath, I could go either way because he, he he certainly didn't necessarily show enough last year to justify being an automatic starter this season. Um, with, with Rowe, I don't I don't know if there were any fitness concerns. I don't not, none that I was actually aware of, um, but. It, it seems like the the keys have been handed to Fagundes, and as Greg alluded to earlier, he's been the guy that that Friedel keeps talking about as someone they want to run the offense through. Um, where a lot of us, and we'll, and we'll talk about the Lee Wynn situation shortly, but a lot of us thought if you know if Lee Wynn's not the guy, it's going to be Rowe. It's finally the time to hand the keys to Rowe. Um, Rowe seemed to be a guy that was most comfortable centrally. Uh, I think Fagundes was a guy who we thought his, his skill set was you know perhaps more suited for the wing. Um, both of them had been playing the wing the past several seasons, but you know this might have been Rowe's chance to, to be in the middle. Um, so, what did we think of Fagundes in that role? And is that a surprise that? Um, Roe was kind of passed over for Fagundes and, and the role that it seems like you know, for all these years Roe has been best suited for and never had a chance because of Lee Wynn. 
Yeah, I was really surprised Roe didn't get the start or uh, where it was. Um, again, I don't want to put too much emphasis on the. I don't know how much of a, the wind had on lineup decisions. Maybe Friedel thought that there was a, um, you know, better matchup with Bunbury. I don't know playing deep balls in the first half, and he was going to substitute Roe in the second half or something to that effect. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm curious to how this game would have played out if there, there wasn't a red card because I think Roe would have come on a lot sooner than we saw him. I think he came in in the 75th minute or something like that. I mean, it was pretty late. It was, the game was pretty much over, I think. Yeah, 75th minute. So, um, yeah, I was really shocked Roe wasn't even in the lineup. Um, I'm sure that's not going to be how it's going to be going forward, but um, Nemeth did not surprise me totally. Um, I, I don't think he showed us a lot last year, and um, with the people they've brought in, I think he's – kind of been reduced to a bench role, but Roe certainly shocked me. I think it was shocking just to see Roe not not come on for uh, for Agudelo when they when they pulled Agudelo out in the 55th minute. I thought that was the point in which we were going to see Roe, even though obviously he didn't start, but I thought that's when we were going to see him, um, especially with the game at, you know, one nothing still. But um, to see him not at that point was actually kind of surprising. And I mean, mind you, you know, Brandon Bay actually showed himself well coming on instead. But um, it was really curious to kind of see, you know, you would think that Roe would be your 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 guy right then and there for that second sub. Um, but the fact that he was kind of held back until like the almost till, till the tail end uh, was also kind of surprising as what well. was almost as surprising as him not getting the start. Yeah, and, and the last guy I want to touch on and, and then jump into the Lee Wynn situation is Juan Aguadello. There is, to me, there's a lot of pressure on him, more so than any other player on this team this year. Um, they got rid of Kai Kamara, who, as as we discussed, as we saw earlier, scored a goal for Vancouver in his debut, a very nice headed goal um, with some service that he got that I don't think we ever really saw him get with the Revolution, but he looks like he um, might be back to his comfort zone of, of getting those nice headers. Uh, but with him gone, there's there's a lot of pressure on Juan Aguadelo to finally be that guy. You know, Throughout the years, we've seen him be pushed to the wing, and, we've, and even in his limited opportunities up top, he hasn't necessarily taken them in, in, in a way where uh, he's forced Jay Heaps' hand, or now Brad Friedel's hand, to... to have that starting position as the center striker. Um, now the role is really his to lose. You know, there's Bunbury who can play there, but otherwise this team has you know guys like like Femi and Brian Wright who I think are are, are a ways away from being that guy. Um, for all these years, we've talked about Aguadelo's potential and, and you know when he's going to get there and if he could be that future U.S. national team guy. Even the, the past few years, we just haven't seen it. Um, you know, years ago there were flashes of him being that guy, but the past few years, you know, every once in a while, he'll have a great game, but the consistency hasn't been there. And now there's so much pressure on him to play up top. Uh, you know, I thought he got off to an okay start, but he had that that great chance earlier that we talked about, um, where he you know waited too long and his speed wasn't there, and the defender got back and made a great tackle. Um, I, you know, it's, again, it's hard in this situation, certainly beyond that first 25 minutes, to to put too much on him given the situation he was in, and then you know getting subbed off in the 54th minute, but. To me, this year, for Juan Aguadella more than anybody else, at, at age 25 now, he's no no longer that young. Uh, it's it's huge that he has a breakout year if he's ever, you know, for, if we were ever going to see him be that player that we, we once thought he could be. Yeah, it feels weird saying that it's kind of like a make-or-break season for him, but uh, for a guy that's 25 years old. But um, we've been sitting on his potential uh, since he came back to the team in 2015. So, um, And, yeah, he had that chance that uh, – you know, the, the defender caught up to him and he also had another chance in the, the opening minutes. Um, although that was Andre Blake cutting down the narrow angle and he kind of fired it right at him. But, um, you know, it, it's a really big season for him. And I think he got off to about as poor a start as you could say. Um, so there's, there's not much more to say, but 
Um, yeah. I think the thing with, with Agadal has always been has always been injuries. I mean, it's there's always something with him is in terms of his uh, in terms of fitness. And you know, even even in this most recent uh, national team camp, he came back with a knock. And I think that's always the thing that's kind of held him back is is the fact that he really hasn't been able to stay healthy throughout an entire season. And if you don't have that, you better have a good uh, a good backup, or you better have a good you know backup plan, I should say. Um, when he does get hurt, because it's all it's always a matter of when, not if. Um, and that's always been the, the the thing to me that's always held him back is that the the talent is there, and when he's on, he's on. Um, but it's just a matter of him staying out, being able to stay on the field, and that's really I think the thing that's really undercut his uh, his um, you know development is the fact that he just he just can't stay healthy. And um, and when you have a player like that, a player who does show. The potential of you know being uh, you know a first choice uh, national team player, but you know time and time again he continues to get hurt. Um, you know from the club from the club's perspective, you better have a good a good backup a good backup plan at, uh, for when he does get hurt. And I think that's the most that's the most um, you know I think as Sean was alluding to it. That's I think that's the most uh, you know troubling aspect of it is that you no longer have Kai Kamara. You no longer have even a Charlie Davies from a couple of years ago to say, okay, well, if this doesn't work or if he gets hurt, you know, no worries because you have you know, Charlie Davies or you have Kai Kamara. Um, and without that kind of security blanket, um, you know, at the point in which Juan gets hurt, you know, what's going to happen in the offense? You know, do you have, do you have a good plan in place or, you know, are they looking at somebody else right now? Um, you know, that those are all things that they'll have to kind of take longer looks at if they're not already, uh, as the season progresses, well, and part of the reason they could get away with having a striker that wasn't necessarily you know, taking all the the scoring burden on himself was you had a guy like Lee Wen who was capable of you know having 15 goals in a season from that midfield spot, and you know we we had to talk about his absence uh, j- just for background. He apparently asked to be traded um, at the end of last season, and then held out in preseason. Came came late. Uh, didn't get much preseason action because of you know showing up late in the preseason lack of fitness. Um, didn't make the 18 this game. Uh, still on the Revolution's roster, and, and we we did hear Twelman over the weekend. Taylor Twelman hinting at uh, a re- the Revolution making a, a trade uh, coming up, and, and that being bandied about. And you have to assume if that's the case, it's Lee Wynn. Uh, but what do you do with Lee Wynn at this point? He's you know, been this team's MVP uh, over the past several years. Yeah, and I've thought about this from the team's perspective because it was reported that they're not even listening to trade offers, which seems crazy to me. Um, I think you can replace Lee Wynn. Um, I think he seems to not want to be here. Uh, I think it makes all the sense in the world to at least listen to trade offers. Um, I will say that uh, last year, uh, I actually wrote an article on New England Soccer Today when it, it came out that Lee, there was a reported offer for Lee Wynn for $1 million from a team in Israel, I think. And I specifically was looking for comparable trades. Um, and I think though there was one this offseason with Benny Failhaber going to LAFC for $400,000 worth of allocation money. And I think that's a pretty good comp for Lee Wynn. Um, I, I think maybe the Revs know that they're not going to get what they think Lee Wynn is worth and they're just not even going to put him on the market. That's the only thing I can think of to why they're not listening to a trade. But um, to me, it seems like he's not going to play for the Revs again. They seem to have some depth in his position. And, you know, I think a lot of people would rather 
uh, see what Kellen Rowe can do and kind of build up with Kellen Rowe um, because the Revs aren't likely going anywhere this season. So um, I'm not sure if Lee Wynn is uh, his contract ends this season or next season, but either way, he doesn't seem to be in their long-term plans. So I think the smart thing would to do would be to trade him, but um, I, I, I guess what the Revs are trying to do is just being selective to where they send him and um, what they can get for him. But um, uh, it, it's really curious to me that they're kind of saying, you know, you have to stay here and you're going to honor your contract because that doesn't seem to be the most productive use. But I think the longer you wait with Lee Wynn, the, the more his value probably decreases and the less trade partners you have. It seems... Uh, you know, if 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 they aren't going to play him this year, and if he's not going to be happy, you, you should have made a move a while ago. You know, maybe even back in November and December when he when he first asked to be moved. Um, I can't I can't imagine his value now is what it was then. And I, I'm we, we've seen how the Revs have handled trades in the past, and we've seen how the Revs have handled Lee Wynn's contract situation in particular, and, and, and you know what Mike Burns does with this. Um, but do you think Mike Burns and, and Brad Friedel are handling this one correctly? I don't think they are for the for the fact that you had just said. I mean, right now his his value isn't isn't increasing; it's decreasing, especially now that everyone's roster is pretty much set for the most part. Um, so the time to have traded him was, you know, a month ago, two months ago, three months ago. Um, so I think that they might have, um, I think they overestimated their leverage, um, with respect to, you know, what they could get for him. So, um, I think at this point you just almost have to cut, uh, the team almost has to cut their losses. They just have to say, okay, well, you know, we made a mistake. Um, let's see what we, let's see what, if anything, we can get for him. Because I know there's somebody out there who could certainly, there's a team out there who could certainly use Lee Wen. Um, but now that they know that they don't have to pay the kind of price that they probably would have had to have paid, you know, back in December or January, you kind of just have to say, all right, well, this is what we can get for him because, you know, he's really not doing the revs a whole lot, you know, sitting on the roster basically doing nothing. And it doesn't look like he's going to be doing anything. And if he does, he's, you're not going to get a very inspired player from what it seems if his, uh, if his request for a trade remains intact. Um, so I think at this point, it's just best for both parties to kind of go their separate ways. And, um, you know, it's incumbent upon the Rebs to kind of get, get the best they can get to, to get the best offer they can get, um, for a player who really doesn't obviously want to be here anymore. Yeah. And I, I want to just add to that too. Um, cause I, I, in that article that I mentioned from last year, I actually defended the Rebs keeping him, which at the time wasn't as unpopular of an opinion as it is now. Um, hindsight's a bit 2020. And, um, you know, the, the main argument I made is, you know, Lee wins don't grow on trees. It's very hard to replace someone who has produced to Lee wins level in the past couple of years. He's still a very effective player. So I think it's hard to say, well, just trade him for whatever you can get. Cause maybe the revs, you know, if they got an offer for $400,000 worth of allocation money or something to that level, they might say, you know, we'd rather just keep him here and see if he changes his mind. Um, then trade him for $400,000 and then maybe send him to, you know, Montreal or Philadelphia or, you know, Orlando or someone in your conference that might battle you in the standings. Um, now that, that narrative though kind of fails you because if you're not competing, then it doesn't matter where you trade him or what you get, because what's the best case scenario for the revolution at this point, they play him and he, I don't, yeah, you're not going to get inspired soccer. I think towards the tail end of last year, too, we saw Lee Wynn's performance kind of drop, and that might be uh, motivation. That might be uh, him wanting to leave. Uh, I don't think you're ever going to get the 
near MVP level or near MLS all-star Lee Wynn on the revolution ever again. You can play him and hope that maybe he builds up some of that value back. Um, but I, I don't think you're going to get it. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm in full agreement with you. It's it's the, the way this has played out has certainly not been favorable to the Revs. Um, you don't want to keep a guy in your books that that's unhappy. And the longer you keep him here not playing, you know, the less your options are going to be. Uh, but uh, to, to move on, I, I, I do want to talk about what our actual thoughts are for the Revs going forward this season, because as we said, you can only take so much from a game in which the, the Revs fell down a man after 25 minutes. Um, I, I, you know, Brad Friedel his first game as coach, um, but Brad Friedel is an untested coach. Uh, we haven't had the chance to discuss, you know, his addition because we, you know, we haven't been on the air since since he was hired. Um, my expectations are that he'll develop a style as it goes forward, but we didn't we didn't get to see it in those first twenty five minutes, even before the red card, and when they got off to not not the fastest start yet again. But I, I do think this team still has enough talent to be one of those teams that's pushing for one of those those last Eastern Conference spots. Um, so a, a lot of it will come down to coaching again and, and finding a way to to do more with this team than than Jay Heaps could. I think I think if it does come down to coaching, I don't think the Revs are going to get get that last final spot because I am very kind of concerned about the way about a lot of things he said publicly and about the way that he wants the team to play. Um, you know, one thing you know, I was reading. Uh, if, interestingly enough, I was actually reading some of uh, Jay Heaps's Q and A uh, after he joined uh, the Birmingham USL side, and one of the questions was, uh, you know, one of the things that they asked him was you know, what was that first year of coaching like for you? And he basically said that it, he thought he knew everything about the game and he quickly realized he did not know everything and that he basically admitted that, you know, that first year was just him getting up to speed um, on the things he didn't know. And obviously we saw that, you know, that first year wasn't great. Um, they obviously improved record-wise, but it, on, the, on the whole, it was, it, was, uh, it was the kind of season you'd expect from a first-year head coach. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of that, a lot of the same this year from uh, Brad Frito's first uh, first uh, first year. Um, the one thing that does kind of uh, that is kind of disconcerting is that he really doesn't really talk. T- he doesn't really talk like about um, about tactics beyond other than other than you know wanting to pl- play a high line and playing the high press. Um, because I, I don't know, I just it's, he he seems to me as somebody who is the quintessential. As long as you work hard, you're going to be all right, and we're going to attack. I mean, it's a lot of the same cliches that we get from a lot of first-year coaches. Um, so, I don't know. If, I don't know if he even knows what his you know full plan is because um, you know not only is he a first-year coach, but I don't think that um, you know he has a true idea as far as how he uh, as far as how he wants to get uh, the most out of each individual player and how each individual player plays into. Uh, you know, a successful system. So um, those are some some of the concerns that I kind of have just based on, you know, based on my own observations. And I think that it's uh, it's probably going to be a ninth or maybe eighth place finish for this team this year. What do you make out of that Juan Aguadella quote from last week where, you know, comparing heaps to Friedel, he, he said he feels like he's actually coming into a workplace and a job. Uh, that was was an interesting way to, to compare the two of them. I'm curious what you make of, of that comment. Yeah, that was an interesting comment because I never really got the sense that, you know, anything was like lacking in terms of, you know, having it be a workplace, you know, uh, you know, professional workplace environment. I've always gotten the sense that, you know, things were very professional in the way that things were, uh, 
the, the way that the, the coaching staff, the Heaps coaching staff ran things as far as the locker room goes. Um, so that was kind of surprising. And I also saw another quote from uh, De La Mayo, who I think also said something to the to the same effect. And it was kind of it kind of took me aback a little bit because I really didn't I really didn't see it. Um, you know, I certainly certainly more professional than the late the later years of from the CV nickel regime, where where it was kind of just like you know, as long as you were a starter, you were going to stay a starter, and you know, you could kind of get away with whatever you wanted to get away with. Um, pretty much the ultimate player's coach, but uh, you know, it was weird to kind of hear those comments because I, from what I saw, you know, I really didn't see that at all. I really didn't see any kind of lack of professionality, um, you know amongst the group if i did see anything last year it was that there were there were definitely clicks um within that locker room and uh one person i did notice that who wasn't a part of those clicks was lee Wynn. so make that what you will but um the dynamic of the locker room was so different last year than it was uh two years ago yeah both both kellen rowe and cody cropper when they came back from the national team camp uh cited friedel as being professional when when they were talking about um, their their description of how camp was you know, potentially different this year. I was going to say there's still a, a, a lot of young players on this team, and so um, I don't really mind the mentality change in that it's you know they have to earn everything. Uh, I kind of like it that you know this team has, in my opinion, underachieved the last couple of years, and so I think um, you know those types of quotes are a positive. Um, but I. I think Brian touched upon this. Uh, it's hard not to ignore uh, Brian Friedel's lack of experience and manager's role. Um, I think you're going to see the first year be a struggle and be a learning curve for Friedel and how to um, manage a game. And um, I, I will say, too, you can't take a lot out of one game in which you're playing a man down for the majority of it. But I was very impressed with the revolution in the second half. Uh, I think we said, I turned to you, Sean, uh, right after the red card, and I said, this game has just turned into how many times can the Union score? And they scored in the, at the end of the first half, and it was like, well, this is going to get ugly. But they only, they only conceded once in the second half, and that was because of a, uh, a terrible defensive play by Somi. Um, the revolution did seem to be motivated, and they did seem to fight through that second half, um, even with the red card with... Uh, Yelna, which we all agree is very stupid. Um, you know, they didn't give up. You, you can, you know, that's the silver lining. To, uh, you, you know, he didn't necessarily give up on the play. He did something way worse, but he didn't give up on the play. So um, it's different from last year in which it seemed like the revolution at times kind of packed it in and they saw the writing on the wall in certain games and uh, didn't seem to push through. And so um, I, I think it will be a bit of a struggle for the Revs. I don't see them making the playoffs this year. I'm not going to make the same mistake I made last year where I predicted them to, uh, to finish the East, uh, third in the East. Um, I learned my lesson from last year. So um, I, I think they're going to miss the playoffs, but I, I certainly think you're going to see a more motivated Revs team uh, that really is going to uh, fight a little bit harder this season. Well, I, I don't think any of us are too high on the Revs this, this year. So I'm curious who, who we all are high on. Um, who, who are your your favorites for both MLS Cup and, and what team do you think might surprise and, and do well this year? Um, that the expectations aren't as high for. Let's start with Brian. I think my uh, right now it's going to be New York City FC. I just think that they're, I think that they're just stacked top to bottom, um, and I think they're gonna they're gonna go deep into the play. I actually think that I actually have them winning the MLS Cup this year. I just I think there's just so much talent on that team, and year after year they just seem to put it together. Um, you know, I think uh, you know obviously Toronto didn't really look good yesterday, but um, and it. Even before yesterday's yesterday's games, um, I would have pegged uh, New York City FC as my uh, 
as my MLS Cup winners. And as far as uh, as far as a dark horse, I know they're not really much of a dark horse, but I want to say LAFC is going to be is going to be. I would say this year's like Sounders were. You know, the Sounders came out their first year. They were like re- they looked really really good, and um, you know, I w- it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me to see them make a deep playoff run their first year in the league. Uh, I'm going to contradict Brian. Uh, I'm a big fan of TFC. Uh, I think Toronto struggled yesterday and, and they didn't get off on the right foot, but I, I still think that's a really strong team and they're the team to beat in the MLS uh, for a number of reasons. Um, in terms of a team that will surprise, uh, I'm a big fan of Dallas. Um, I think, you know, they're a couple of years out from that really strong team they had a couple of years ago and they still have a lot of those pieces there. Um, they still have great coaching. Um, I think the West is wide open. So um, I think Dallas is going to surprise some people and they're going to be there um, at the end of the season. Um, another team that I'm curious about is um, actually Colorado, who's coming in this week. Uh, I know they're not supposed to be very good, but, um, you know, they play very defensively. I think if they add someone midseason and if they get some offensive spark, um, they might rack up some points, uh, get into the playoffs, and, uh, you know, anything can happen in the playoffs. It wouldn't shock me if um, they just stonewall some of the better offensive teams and, and make it deep in the playoffs. For, for me, for the first time in, in a long time, I think the, the top three teams in the league are arguably in the Eastern Conference. I, I see Toronto, Atlanta, despite the rough start they had, um, and New York City FC as three the real, three real contenders. I also have trouble looking past Toronto um, after the incredible season they had last year. I, I think that the Champions League uh, is going to have an impact on them. I think it certainly had an impact on them in that first game. They you know they played their starters in those games. Um, when we talk about Colorado later, they did not. Um, but Toronto played their starters in the Champions League games, and I think that ended up biting them against Columbus. Um, to me. You know, when you're a team as good as Toronto, you know you're going to make the playoffs. Uh, you should go all out in Champions League when you can and you have that opportunity. And, you know, they've advanced because of it. Um, but I, I still expect them to, to be in the cup and, and win it at the end of the year uh, with New York City FC and Atlanta both being uh, serious challenges challengers for them a, a, as the year goes on. Um, and, and perhaps they won't make the Supporters Shield this year in part because of their, their Champions League obligations and how seriously those are taken. They'll take those. Uh, my other dark horse also, my dark horse also comes from the East, and I, I'm interested to see Orlando this year. Um, they disappointed last year, but I think part in part with uh, Kakagon, they've, they've made some very interesting trades. Um, they got, had a 1-1 draw against CC to, th- to start the year, but they were missing you know, several key contributors. Kleshton was out. Um, I believe Dwyer missed that game. Um, they have a very talented roster, and with with a coach like Jason Christ, I think it's just a matter of time before they figure it out. Uh, and, and I think they're another team that could, could surprise us here as, as things go forward. Um, so that's, that, they're a team that I'm very excited to watch. Um, and, I'm, and I'm also very excited to see how you know, the MLS teams do as we progress further into the Champions League. I was disappointed Dallas didn't make it. But you know, with, with the Red Bulls and, and Toronto both still in it, um, those will be exciting teams that might actually have a chance. And, of course, Seattle with the, with the big win as well. Um, you know, three, three MLS teams that I'm excited to see the Champions League progress. Um, but all those teams, I think it will have an impact on, on going forward. Uh, before we wrap things up, I, I do want to look forward to the Revs' next game. We, we certainly mentioned that the two players that will be out are De La May and, and Dielna, their two starting center backs. Uh, that, that's the obvious topic to look to is, is who plays center back in this game. I think, you know, Giuliano Baba is... Uh, the obvious choice as the the center back they brought in, but uh, is Andrew Farrell back to to center back in this one? And we see you know Brandon By who you know still hasn't played right back at any high level um, out there. Or, or what do we think we're going to see in that game? Um, and and beyond that, what what's your prediction for the Revolution's home opener against Colorado? 
I think it's going to be Annie Bobby and Farrell at, at center back. Um, I think it'll be that. I'll be it'll be them too. And I am going to say that it's going to be one one. It'll be a draw, and I will call it. And I will say that Agadell scores the goal for the Reds. Yeah, I agree on the center back pairing. I don't think there's much options. Um, I'm not sure who would, who else you could even really play back there. Um, we talked about maybe converting Zahibo back there uh, since he's got the size. Um, but uh, I think of all the fixtures to have your two center backs out, having Colorado, who is not the, who's offensively challenged, and uh, having a, a home opener. Uh, is probably the best time to have uh, those players missing. So um, I, I think it'll be, uh, I'll go one, nothing revolution. Um, I will say I, I give Fagundes the goal. I think Fagundes scores the lone goal and it'll be a second half goal. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what to predict out of this one. It's the center back pairing leaves so much questions. Two guys that have never played center back together before a guy in Andrew Farrell that, as we know, um, hasn't looked that great at center back when he's been forced to play there. And, and you know, Anibaba is a guy that's known for, you know, going into <laughs> strong into tackles too. Um, so you have to make sure that neither of them come away with, with a red card in this. Um, it, it, there's just no depth at center back outside of Anibaba. And that's you know, another thing that they went into the season without enough pieces at. Um, so that'll be interesting to see. I, I don't think Colorado is going to be a particularly good team this year. Um, I, I was very interested in seeing their approach to the CONCACAF Champions League. They they started off with a pretty defensive lineup in their first game, the home leg against Toronto. Lost that game. They had some chances, uh, but lost that 2-0. And then to see them go into their second leg um, and basically play all their backups, uh, and we should point out that Colorado did not have an MLS game this weekend. So they were not resting guys for their MLS game. They were just resting guys and treating it as a preseason game and a game that mattered um, when they had you know a week and a half off until they played the Revs. So that was surprising to me from Colorado, which is a team in general that I don't think is going to be very good. But to see them play their backups in a Champions League game when they didn't even have an MLS game this weekend uh, was was interesting. Because um, to me, that's even an opportunity to to get your starters more minutes and get them more prepared, even if you've already thought you've lost that being down 2 nothing to Toronto. Um so I, I'm, not, I'm not high on Colorado, and I'm not high on the Revs with, with um, the defensive lineup that they're going to have to put out in this game. Um, I guess I, I will also predict a, a 1-1 draw, but it's, it's going to be interesting, and I'm not sure it's going to be a particularly pretty game, uh, particularly if it ends up being another cold game um, in New England. So that'll be, that'll be one to watch, and that game's at, at 1.30 on Saturday. Um, but you know, two, two teams that I don't think are going to, to go very far this year um, and, and two teams that uh, have a lot of questions that remain to be unanswered. Um, and, and, and one last question before we wrap it up is, you know, looking at this team, there's still you know, several roster spots open. And I think we all also think there's areas to improve. If there was one position um, that you would look to address and fix going forward to get this team you know, a, a bit better, even if not necessarily over the hump, what spot do you see as, as still the weakness on this team? Um, because they did go out this season and they got a left back, they got a defensive midfielder, um, and, and they got Pania, who who's added the attack. Uh, Brian, what spot do you think the Revs need to improve upon to? to I mean, it's have it's hard to say forward? without really getting a a full view of as far as what Zahibo brings. But I still think that they could probably improve there. Um, and I, you know, I hate to use, uh, you know, one of the best players that ever played there as kind of like the measuring stick. 
And even though Jermaine Jones really, really wasn't like a, a, a bona fide six, but I think you need that kind of midfield general. Um, uh, and it's something that they've been lacking for the last two years, pretty much ever since Jermaine Jones left. Um, so I think you need that kind of player, like a guy who kind of maybe rotates between a six at, between playing a six and an eight, um, but just one way or another kind of like bosses the midfield. You really, really need that. And I don't think any any team um, that's looking to improve upon missing playoffs the last two years can get back to playoffs without really having that kind of play. Yeah, I agree with Brian. Um, now that the Revs have uh, filled the goalkeeper position with future MLS All-Star Matt Turner, I think that the, uh, the midfield needs to be improved. Uh, I think that's the biggest question mark going in. Uh, as I say, Zahibo had a, a promising game, um, but if I had to pinpoint one position that I would like to improve, um, it would probably be that. Uh, unless you're giving me the option to trade Lee Wynn for uh, something of equal value, in which case I would say that's the move that the Revs need to make. Yeah, to, to me, there's there's four big question marks of where you, where you can go with. There's your, both your fullback spots, which I think are, are still question marks um, based on this game. And, of course, Zahibo, that's such an important position, um, as, as you talked about, so I won't go into there. But So I, I'm going to go with, with the striker spot, and I, I just don't know that Juan Aguadelo is going to become that player that we thought he was going to become. And, and if he doesn't, that's a huge hole for the revolution and something they really need to address because they need somebody up there that's going to be able to score, you know, 12, 15 goals for them. And they haven't had that recently. Um, and I, and I'm not sure Juan Aguadel is going to become that player. So if, unless we see significant improvement, um, and consistency and his ability to stay healthy as well, uh, that's the spot that with the lack of depth that they have, you know, if they have to turn to Teal Bunbury for a long stretch or, or Brian Wright or, or, or Femi, even, um, they're going to be in trouble, I think. And certainly if Juan Aguadelo doesn't doesn't show up and doesn't perform the way that they need him to, that's going to be a, a spot of concern for the revolution going forward. Um, but, you know, there's a there's a lot to be to, there's a lot, a lot to keep an eye on as the season goes forward, because, you know, they have the new left back, the new defensive mid. Um, and we still haven't seen you know much of Pania due to the, the circumstances in the first game, which uh, at, at the end of the day, the most disappointing thing to me from that first match is we just weren't able to see. Uh, enough of these newcomers, whether it was because they were subbed out or because of the situation, just didn't put them in a spot to be successful. Um, and and just those the stupid red cards that they got last year and the stupid red cards that they got in this game uh, have been you know, something that's really hurt this team, regardless of who was on the field. Uh, and and that's something that. Um, and, and the last point I want to make is that that's something that you you have to keep an eye on going forward. And you know I think we talked about this um, throughout the week when when we saw that that red card that Zahibo got in his debut, um, that to me was a, was a blatant red. Um, and then after the match, Brad Frito said, oh, it was nothing. Some guys can, will call that and some guys won't. And, you know, whether it's even a foul. And uh, I don't know if I'm reading too much into a preseason comment uh, like that or just trying to defend his guy to the media. But, you know, that's an area of concern is, is the discipline that we saw last year and that we didn't see in this game. Um, and, and certainly we're going to need to see next week because the bodies aren't there anymore uh, is the ability to avoid those red cards. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, that, that, that to me, I think is a legitimate concern. I think it's something that obviously it's a preseason game. Um, and, you know, maybe you just chalk it up as to, you know, a guy who maybe just got caught in the heat in the moment, uh, similar to what we saw from Dylan yesterday. Um, and you, uh, you certainly hope as an observer that that doesn't that doesn't continue to happen, or if it's not the you know the sign of an early trend. Um, but that's something that you know if that's going to be an ongoing problem, then you really have to take stock at um, at at improving that spot in in already 
even even this early because um, you know obviously it's it's hard to predict how players will react in a new place um, unless you've unless you've thoroughly scouted them and I think the track record is that the Revs don't really have the luxury of thoroughly thoroughly scouting anybody. Um, so if that's if that's kind of what you're getting from Zahiba going forward, then uh, then it is very troubling already to see uh, to see something like that happen early in the preseason. Um, and you just hope it doesn't carry over into the regular season. Or you just hope uh, you just kind of hope that it's uh, that it's just a one off. And I think we'll wrap things up here. But the you know, up to, upcoming two games for the Revolution, we talked about Colorado um, next week in a one thirty p.m. game, and then they're home again. Um, after a, a bye week playing New York City FC, the, the team that we talked about as being one of the, the more exciting teams to watch this year, another 130 game, but two home games for the Revolution. Uh, with the struggles the Revs have had in the road in the past few years, I think those are, are both crucial. Um, we'll be back next week, again, recording on a Sunday night, so following up on that Colorado game with discussion there. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that after that one, we'll have a better sense of, of where this team is after seeing more of Pania, more of Somi, you know, more of Zahibo. Um, and, and who knows what else we'll see with the, with the lineup changes. Certainly, Annie Baba's you know, going to get a start. So uh, there'll be a lot more to talk about next week. Thanks, for everyone, for, for listening to us today. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. We'll, we're going to eventually try to update the, the Revolution Recap webpage. Um, <laughs> a bit behind on that. And, and, of course, we'll be keeping you updated on where you can find the show on both the New England Soccer Today Twitter and the New England Soccer Today Facebook uh, thanks again, Brian and Greg, for for joining us on the on this first episode, and hopefully we'll have you both on again uh, next week. Uh, this was Revolution Recap. We'll see you next week. <laughs>